Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to Essex Church and to this, our gathered community of the spirit, Kensington Unitarians. Ours is a community created by all who walk through our doors, and it's a community where everyone has a voice, which is just as well on days like this, when my own voice is a bit croaky. Luckily, there are people to help out and share in leading this service which takes as its theme a celebration of the part sculptures play in public life. We've got good music, we've got some quiet, thoughtful times, we've got some interesting perspectives on life. This is a very Unitarian way to spend an hour on Sunday morning. So let's gather ourselves now. Let's take a conscious breath here, now, in the present moment aware of our past that has brought us to this moment, aware of an unknown future lying ahead. You're able for now to be present in the here and now, simply being, open to the possibilities of fresh vistas and new ways of being. When everyone in the world can follow their own hearts and love who they want to love, then we might not need this candle. When everyone in the world has a vote and is treated equally, we might not need this candle. When everyone in the world is regarded as an equal human being, we might not need this candle. But today, we need the light of this simple chalice flame, symbol of a worldwide Unitarian community. We need this flame to remind us of the issues that need our support. May all people be free to be who they truly are. I was once asked, Veronica, if you had to choose one, just one quality, one virtue, Amongst all others, a good way to live a life, what would it be? And I reply, well, let me tell you a story. In a famous city, there once stood a statue, built in memory of a much-loved prince. The statue was covered from head to toe in gold leaf. His eyes were made from two beautiful sapphires. On his shield was a red ruby. What a grand statue he was. One day, a little swallow arrived in the town on her flight south to the warmer climate of Africa. She decided to rest for the night on the prince's shoulder. But as night fell, the swallow noticed drops of water falling on her feathers. How strange, thought the little swallow. There isn't a cloud to be seen. There are stars in the sky. Looking up, she saw that the prince was weeping. Why are you weeping, dear prince? Surely you are wealthy and happy. 
Oh, little swallow, now that I can stand here and look down across the city, I see into every corner. I am so troubled by the suffering and the need all around us. Would you help me, little swallow, just one night? For I am fixed here and cannot move. The swallow had a kind heart. Well, just this one night. I don't have much time. If I stay too long, the cold weather will harm me and I will die. The prince was delighted and thanked the little swallow. Just be so good as to pick the red ruby out of my shield. Bring it to the mother with the hungry children in the room over there. The swallow picked up the ruby and then held it in her beak. She flew in through the open window and dropped the ruby in the lap of the mother, who had fallen asleep, exhausted. The next day the swallow was about to fly away, but the prince begged her, Please, little swallow, stay one more night. There is a man homeless and cold. Bring him my precious blue sapphire. Pick it out of my eye. And the swallow reluctantly picked out the sapphire and brought it to the poor cold man. Next evening, the prince begged the swallow once more. Please stay with me one more night. A family has arrived from a country far away. Take my other eye. With this jewel, they can start a new life here. The swallow was upset. Then you will no longer see. The prince replied, I shall see with my heart. So the swallow picked out the second eye and flew with it to the immigrant family. When she returned, she said to the prince, I won't fly to Africa now. I shall stay with you and be your eyes. From then, the swallow would fly around, observing where the need was greatest and reporting back to the prince. He would ask her to pick off pieces of gold leaf from his body so it could be used to ease the suffering of the town. One after another, the pieces of gold leaf were removed, carried away by the swallow and given to those in most need. And the strange thing was that the more exposed and poor the, the prince became, the happier he seemed to be. The swallow, too, felt such joy in her heart. Then came the bitter cold weather, and the swallow realised she would soon die. Dear Prince, she whispered weakly, I, I will soon have to leave you. These were her last words. She fell down at his feet. The prince's monument now looks so shabby. The people of the town decided to dismantle it and melt it down.
but it is said that the prince's generous heart remained intact forever, forevermore as a reminder of the kindness that he and the little swallow had shown to others. Not everyone is called to give away their very lives for others, but I think we can all usually be a little bit kinder. I reckon that's the way to live life well. Oscar Wilde called that story the happy prince. So I think our children are now going to go downstairs for their own programme. And we're joining in a time of shared prayer and reflection. I call on the spirit of life to be with us now and to help make this church a place of refuge. A place where rules are perhaps a bit different. May this be a place where no experience is necessary and where people are encouraged to risk new things. May this be a place where people feel that their efforts have been worthwhile and their energy well spent. And may it be a place where everybody gets to play. May nobody amongst us feel invisible here or worried about what others might be thinking of them. May this be a place where people are touched, if not by something said, then perhaps by something sung, or by the silence, or the light coming through the windows in our roof, or by a sense that people who come here do try and support one another. <coughs> May this be a place where everyone feels safe, safe to follow our own thoughts wherever they lead, safe to believe whatever we must, safe to share whatever is on our minds, whatever is in our hearts. Spirit of life, help us make this church a refuge, a place where rules are different, a place where we can be refreshed and renewed, returning to the world with batteries recharged, perhaps a little bit more able then to transform the world into a place where people really are encouraged to be their precious selves. And so I invite you now to spend a little time inwardly voicing your own thoughts and prayers for those you care about, for situations that are on your mind.
and may the connections that we make with others in our hearts and in our lives help this world to be a little more beautiful for the greater good of all. Amen. So we have um, two people, uh, Margaret and Heidi, are going to talk now about some of their uh, favourite sculptures. My sister and brother-in-law are both bronze sculptors. Judith Holmes Drury, my sister, met Lloyd LeBlanc in America when she was 18. She was on an English-speaking union scholarship. Lloyd had taught at Yale. He was so dyslexic and turned up for his job interview with a lorry full of sculptures as he didn't have the normal qualifications. He got the job. They had a studio in a factory in downtown San Francisco where they also lived. Jude then brought Lloyd to England to meet us all. They created a bronze foundry in a building on my father's farm in Leicestershire. I remember watching a dramatic, scary bronze pour in these early days with Lloyd in open-toed sandals. Glad to say they now have four people working in the foundry with safety procedures in place. Their sculptures are all around the world. Australia, New Zealand, Middle East, Europe and America. One very moving story is how recently a 15-year-old boy in Florida raised money to build a memorial garden for a 13-year-old schoolmate. This young girl died of a brain tumour. There's a wonderful film on the website of his friends all digging the site for a beautiful Lloyd sculpture of a peacock to be installed as it was her favourite bird. It was called The Peacock Project and was installed in Winter Park, Florida. Jude, as she was known, was mainly interested in casting figures. I say was, as she sadly died five years ago. These figures are often observed in private, reflective moments, and she manages to get so much feeling into the bronze metal, making it so alive. It's first modelled in clay. She was very sensitive and perceptive about people and liked to meet and talk to whoever she was modelling, forming a bond and making it special. I'm glad she has a lot of work in public places where all can appreciate. There's a miner in the centre of Colville in Leicestershire. Matthew Flinders, the navigator who sailed round and mapped Australia in Castle Donington, Leicestershire, where he was born. Ring of Roses, a sculpture of three little children playing gleefully, which is in a retirement home. Latour Marliac, the botanist in gardens in France, being a few. Lloyd has started to do figures. He's just modelled Raymond Blanc's mother, a 90-year-old in her jeans and wellies. 
Raymond loves their work, and the gardens at Le Manoir au Quatre Saisons are full of wonderful pieces, from the dramatic giant artichokes at the entrance to flocks of birds taking off over the lakes. The flying ducks are by the river in Kingston-upon-Thames. Leaping salmon in County Donegal Island at the entrance to a hotel, which is owned by Niall's father, who he comes here to and the dancing cranes in Dublin Island are all lovely pieces. One commission that I love, Lloyd did recently, are three working dogs, a retriever, spaniel, and German shepherd, and they're by the station in Melton Mowbray. I have seen firsthand how dedicated artists are and the passion they have to express life through their work sometimes at a great cost to themselves. Lloyd can still cast Jude's work, and he bravely works harder than ever. Personally, I feel so proud of Jude, and it's a comfort to know her work lives on. Bronze will last forever, and her spirit still reaches out and inspires us. I would like to talk about uh, a sculpture by Henry Moore. Um, it's a bit uh, distant, maybe. Some of them have got to Yeah, yeah, some of you. Uh, and uh, this sculpture uh, is placed on Hampstead Heath, uh, next to Kenwood House. And uh, I always love it. I mean, I love Kenwood House and, and Hampstead Heath anyway. But I love walking up there. And you see, on the right-hand side, you see Kenwood House, 18th century, very classic, very white. And uh, on the left-hand side, hidden a bit among the trees, there is this sculpture by Henry Moore. And it's called Reclining Figure Number 5. And I feel it's fascinating. It's also a bronze sculpture, by the way, a very large bronze sculpture. And it has so many elements. Uh, it's a figure. Uh, but it also, ha it also is abstract or semi-abstract, and it also has a sort of element of landscape and, and trees, and it interacts with the landscape uh, uh, in a very beautiful way, and it's sort of where it is, it's sort of a, like um, a contrast, uh, both a contest and a harmony with the landscape and with Kenwood House. And uh, Henry Moore was, of course, I think one can say, the most famous British sculptor, a sculptor in the 20th century. Uh, he was born, I think, 1924, 1925. His work was first not accepted and rather criticised, but then particularly in, in the Second World War, he was an official war artist. He did these famous drawings of people uh, sheltering in the underground during bomb raids. And uh, 
of course, like most sculpture, sculptors he could draw extremely well. But he, he was from Yorkshire, son of a miner, and uh, a lot of his sculptures are displayed in the Yorkshire landscape. And often his sculptures, I mean, here we've got a quite, sculpture thrives in the context of the city. I think Henry Moore's sculptures particularly thrive in the concept of the landscape. And um, he, yeah, he was from Yorkshire, uh, and he, but he lived in Hampstead for uh, some years, had a studio there, he was a professor of uh, the Royal College of Art, and then later on, he, uh, well in 1948 he was given an international prize, and his career took off, and he became very successful, and his sculptures, uh, he, he became famous worldwide. His uh, sculptures can be seen in public places in, in many cities in Europe and, and beyond. And uh, uh, so he became very successful but he continued to live quite frugally and most of his, uh, most of the money he worked he earned was pulled back into his work making more and more uh, pieces. And uh, he moved to Hertfordshire uh, to Match Haddam, and uh, there's now a museum, the Henry Moore Foundation, and uh, it's also, it's, uh, I think it's wonderful. There are these sculptures standing in the landscape, the sheep grazing round, and you can also, there is a workshop, his studio, where he started with little maquettes, little, uh, and, and with drawings. You can actually also see how much he was influenced by Greek sculpture, particularly from the drawings, and so you can see his maquettes, his drawings, his big sculptures, his small sculptures. If uh, it's a very nice place to visit if you ever have the opportunity, and also, of course, much nearer is this um, sculpture on Hampstead Heath. Again, we hope the weather gets better if you go to Hampstead Heath Overground Station and walk up the hill to Kenwood House, you can, you can see the sculpture on one hand, Kenwood House on the other. Kenwood House has a very famous collection of paintings inside, mainly um, Dutch 18th, 19th century and things like that. Also a very nice coffee shop where you can <laughs> recover. So um, uh, it's one, I think it's one of the bits of London that I particularly like and uh, I would like to share it with you because it's, um, I feel it's not just a sculpture, it's an experience going to see this. Thank you. Thank you. Here's another sculpture. Ozymandias of Egypt. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed and on the pedestal, these words appear. 
My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. We replanned this service so I wouldn't give my version of the delights of public sculpture today. But just so to whet your appetites, because my bit's going to appear in the next newsletter, it involved the decapitation of Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> Victoria's obsessive love for Albert, and East London's passions for old flow that allowed her to see out her retirement on a Yorkshire hillside. There's a lot to look forward to in the newsletter this month. But now we have Roy telling us about one of his sculptures. Favourites. And some of you have got it on your order of service sheet. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah. So, um, well, the UK is actually blessed with, uh, or in some cases it has to, has to be said cursed, with, um, with public artworks. Um, many situated, uh, well, all over the place, really. Sculptures, small and large, and extra large. Uh, as well as murals of various sorts, and they occupy sites and in, in, in cities and increasingly urban spaces also. In London, some superb works of art can be found in both municipal and royal parks, perched on office buildings and even on the sides of shops such as the Barbara Hepworth sculpture on the side of John Lewis in Oxford Street. The London Underground too has art on view, until the recent crossrail development, you could find Eduardo Pagliozzi's exuberant mosaics lining the platforms at Tottenham Court Road. They're back. Yes. Well, are they? Are yeah. they? I think yeah. they're going to move them to a museum. And this is, funny enough, I'm going to go off track a little bit. Oh, but no. <laughs> 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 well, one, one of the things that always amazes me about public art is that people walk past it and they don't look at it. Admittedly, some's not so good, some's better. But, they just look, but if it was in a museum, say the Tate, people would pay good money to see the same thing and be told all about it. But it's all around us. Um, and, and that's the case with the Pagliozzi. Um, anyway, my favourite uh, work of art is The Burgers of Calais uh, by Auguste Rodin. Situated in the gardens next to the Palace of Westminster, the medieval style of the Houses of Parliament, which loom over the figure group, actually work as an excellent backdrop. Um, the story of the Burgers of Calais derives from a time when the Normandy town was besieged by the English king in the 14th century. Six townsmen gave themselves over as prisoners, believing they were to be executed in return for the city's salvation. In the event, they were spared, but Rodin's sculpture portrays the moment of their martyr-like sacrifice. The emaciated bodies, tattered robes, and above all, the wonderfully delicate and melancholy gestures and poses of the figures express a strangely powerful and captivating view of the pain and sorrow experienced by these brave souls, and indeed by all of us. The sculpture, cast in bronze, is one of a very few large commemorative public works that for once does not celebrate kings and nobles, military men, imperialists, industrialists or other worthies, but is instead a representation of the dignity and, human, and humanity 
of the ordinary citizen prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice for the welfare of others. With this sculpture, designed in the 1880s, Rodin proved himself the rightful heir of Donatello, Michelangelo and Bernini. Indeed, the soft feeling of surrender it evokes is comparable with Michelangelo's dying slave in the Louvre. Yet, in Rodin's hands, this is a disconcertingly modern art. Flowing surfaces, seemingly undulating volume and mass, adding psychological depth to the heartbreaking scene. Rodin's masterpiece is sculpture as history painting, and it serves in London as a monument to humble everyday heroes. It is true, and it is beautiful. If only more public art rose to this level. So, when you're next in central London and have some spare time, it's well worth a visit. If you can't face negotiating the tourist throng encountered on exiting Westminster Station, you can instead approach it from Millbank, being only in fact a short distance along the river from Tate Britain. Thank you. We are always planting seeds of one sort or another. So may the seeds that we plant in the week ahead be for others as well as for ourselves. May we be thoughtful about the good earth on which we depend. May we be inspired by the stars that twinkle in mystery. And may we be blessed with the courage to make our next steps, each of us playing our small part in creating this world of wonders. Amen. Go well and blessed be.